1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: Welcome to Viral, a podcast series looking at the spread of COVID-19 as it continues to affect Ireland and the international world in a growing capacity. On the podcast today, we look at why the coronavirus is killing much more people in the UK than at home here in Ireland.
1: Schools, colleges and childcare facilities will close from tomorrow where possible teaching will be done online or remotely. Cultural institutions will close as well. We are not, repeat not, closing schools now. The scientific advice is that this could do more harm than good at this time. Our advice is that all indoor mass gatherings of more than 100 people, and outdoor mass gatherings of more than 500 people should be cancelled. We are considering the question of banning major public events such as sporting fixtures and the scientific advice as we, we've said over the last couple of weeks is that this uh, banning such events will have little effect on the spread.
0: That was of course Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar speaking with varying levels of concern about what needs to be done to delay the spread of the virus in their country. What makes this clip even more extraordinary though is that they were filmed only a matter of minutes apart on the 12th of March last month. Both countries are now living in extremely similar lockdown conditions but one of the main differences is that the UK's conditions only became stringently enforced two weeks after this date. Here is Boris Johnson in that same press conference speaking to a journalist about their different approach to their neighbouring countries. Remember at this stage herd immunity was very much a part of the UK's action plan to fight the virus.
2: How sure are you That the approach you're taking, holding back from some of the more drastic measures, is the right one. You say you're guided by the science, but if it turns out to be the wrong approach, the consequences would be extremely grave.
1: The issue about asking elderly people to stay at home, when we're asking uh, older people, vulnerable people, uh, to go through a pretty difficult period of, of isolation, we time it so as to, to coincide with the moment when they are at most exposure to the illness. That's one of the reasons why we're not triggering uh, that draconian measure now, if you, if you see what I mean.
0: So today on the podcast, I am joined by Elaine Doyle, who is a writer and researcher with a special interest in medicinal history. Elaine has done some incredible analysis on the death rates of both Ireland and Britain since the outbreak of the crisis and noticed a staggeringly larger proportion of deaths per capita for those living in the UK. She did so by looking at a huge amount of variable factors, and her analysis claims that the UK are suffering up to 3.4 times more deaths than their closest neighbours both culturally and geographically, depending on what variables and data are considered. Here is my interview with her. Before the virus became a pandemic... Is it safe to say that Ireland and the UK had quite comparable health services in relation to the resources needed to fight an infectious disease such as this?
2: That's an excellent question. I mean, I think the first thing to say when you're comparing any two countries during a pandemic is that it's fraught with difficulties. Um, you have any number of different variables that change between two different countries. Uh, the, thing that the number that I highlighted of the number of ICU beds that were available in Ireland versus the UK before the pandemic arrived, which were broadly comparable in the sense that one was 6.5 per 100,000, the other was 6.6 per 100,000. The UK having slightly more than Ireland, and both of us being just over half of the EU average. That, of course, doesn't actually capture the full complexity of uh, the differences in our healthcare systems. Ireland, of course, has a public private hybrid system. The UK has the NHS, and anyone who's emigrated from Ireland to the UK will tell you the vast difference between the two. If anything, I think the NHS is starkly the stronger health support network. Both health systems have been underfunded in recent years. Both health systems have been calling for more uh, investment in ICU and critical care beds generally. So, I mean, there's a longer conversation there about the trade-offs between the health systems, and so I wouldn't, wouldn't say that they're the same by any means. But I suppose the, the figure that caught my eye was that in terms of ICU beds, we really were broadly comparable before this science arrived.
0: Can we speak a little bit about the first two weeks of lockdown and why you felt it was so important and what the data has shown in the differences between Ireland's approach and the UK's approach?
2: I don't want to equivocate because I feel like it's important to speak clearly. But I think the first thing I'd say is that At this point in the pandemic, it's still very, very young. We've only had this virus for a couple of months. All information that we have is contingent. all information that we're having is changing. However, what's incredibly clear is that the, the timing of lockdown is absolutely vital and has shown to be absolutely vital in the data in terms of the effect on the infection rates and then from the infection rates onwards to the number of people who died. My experience in March, I think, was very similar to a number of other Irish people's experiences, which is that we were looking at the advice being given by our government, which was uh, really from early March onwards, they were being given very clear advice that this was an oncoming threat, that even from the 9th of March, when we cancelled St. Patrick's Day, and onwards from there to our delay phase from the 12th to the 27th of March, that even though we were only at a delay phase at that point, that containment was to come there were signal that this was... The only way that we were going to pause business tracks was for us to stay home and to stay away from each other so that we wouldn't infect each other. The contrast for me was that at the point when the Irish government was advising us uh, to stay home, that on the 12th of March when we were uh, closing our schools and universities, in the UK, Boris Johnson's government was advising its, its people to stay home as they were sick and wash their hands and explicitly deciding to not close their schools and universities. That I think was a very unfortunate decision, and it's not just me. this. It is now emerging more and more in the, in the last few days. UK scientists were advising their government to close down, close down early, but they weren't being heard. And the death rates between our two countries have, I believe, shown the difference between shutting down early and shutting down a bit later. On the 9th of March, we cancelled St. Patrick's Day. On um, the 10th of March, the UK went ahead with Chapman, which was a 250,000 people event over multiple days, and was almost definitely a Super event. So if we count from the 9th of March to the 23rd of March, when the UK finally shut down, that is a two-week period. Now, the UK technically locked down ahead of us. We only locked down on the 27th of March, but like I said, we were rolling into those restrictions at a much earlier date. And to me, that two-week period is absolutely essential. There's a... Uh, study that came out from an epidemiologist called Britta Jewell, uh, published in the New York Times this week, that showed that 90% of the cumulative deaths in the US to date could have been avoided if they had shut down two weeks earlier. Pandemics operate on an exponential curve. So every day that you delay costs lives. Every hour that you delay costs lives. And so there's a very good argument that while the data is still, still being collated and we really will not know for three to four years exactly what the differences were between countries and how this is going to play through in the long term, I think we can wait three to four years to ask these questions. And in the meantime, we can see that we know that that delaying costs lives and we know that the Irish government started shutting down earlier than the UK government and it was a very unfortunate decision, I think, on the UK government's part.
0: Can you speak to us about why this specific pandemic grows in such an exponential manner that you spoke about? Um, I suppose at one minute it seemed to be something that was quite moderate, and then suddenly numbers seem to be exploding on a global case. Mm-hmm. Is it because the rate of transmission is so high and that it's so contagious?
2: It's a number of things. Um, it's a really good question. It, it's really counterintuitive. It's hard for us to get our heads around. Um, exponential curves, the way that they work for it, any exponential curves, that things will build very, very slowly, and then they'll burst out all at once. And that's just the way that numbers... Uh, Increase on an exponential line. Um, Or not number is the figure that you'll hear people come back to over and over again. And the Or not number is just a way of of expressing how many people will I infect if I get sick. So, for example, if I have measles, um, it's it's incredibly infectious. So, you have Or not number of measles around 18. So, every sick person will infect another 18 people. Um, The Or not number for where any disease isn't fixed. Because not, and that makes sense if you think about it. If I am sick and I'm staying home, I'm not going to be infecting quite as many people as, as if I'm sick and I'm walking around the park or I'm walking into, into shopping centres or if I'm going to the cinema or going to work. So an or not number isn't a fixed number. But it does give you an idea of if in an unmitigated pandemic, in other words, in a pandemic where no one makes any changes to behaviour, what might the rate of transmission be? And for... This particular pandemic, i am seeing figures of around 2.3, 2.2. Um, again, that'll change as we get more information, and it will vary substantially depending on what country you're looking at and what the behaviour of the people in our country are. In terms of exponential curves, um, again, I'll come back to Berta work, which I found to be, I think, she's been communicating the strangeness of an exponential curve really well. In mid-March, she published another piece of research which showed um, a pretty an analysis rather than piece of research that was explaining that because... This was moving on an exponential curve. It really mattered when you started to stay home. So she was looking at the U.S. figures where there was around 30 to 33% increase in daily infections a day. Mm -hmm. Um, And if that was to be consistent over the course of a month, then if you were to stay home in mid-March, you would be part of a chain of transmission that would be interrupted. So you would would stop 2,400 infections. One person would stop 2,400 infections. Like staying home mid March, which is astonishing to get your head around. Mm. But if that same person put it on and continued with their lives and then the following week went, oh, we'll hang on, this is serious, I'll start staying home now, it would still do good, it'd still be worth doing. But they would only stop 600 infections. Because of the sharpness of that curve, if you go back to junior CERT maths or GCSE maths, when you imagine the curve starting right up, because of the sharpness of the curve, where you stuck on the curve really, really matters. And so stopping a week earlier, one person's choices would prevent 1,800 extra infections from happening. And at a a 1% death rate, that means that if a person stopped going out one week earlier in March, one person could prevent 18 deaths, could save 18 lives. And that, I think, was what was underlining the Irish government's decision to intervene early. Um, And I don't throw blame around in the sense that I, I think that Everything was moving very quickly, there was a lot, lot of information moving in all directions. But it was a very upsetting experience from this side of the Irish Sea, that I'm, I'm sure you and other people shared, to to see our government respond and, and give a set of advice about how dangerous it was to go out and to see my our friends and family in the UK not being given that same advice.
0: Can we speak a little bit about the importance of the variable factors that help increase transmission? I think your initial piece that you had written on Twitter had come under a bit of scrutiny regarding varying population levels of the two countries, but you came back with more information yourself. Would mm. you mind speaking about that a little bit?
2: The first thing is that, obviously, the population of the two countries are not the same. Um, I, I, like I say, I, I've said this line a few times, that any immigrant from Ireland to the UK will tell you that the two places are not the same. Um, Ireland and England specifically are not the same. Um, Ireland has a lower population density, uh, but there are more parallels than you might believe. For example, Dublin's population density is broadly similar to the population of London proper. It's around 4,500 people per square kilometre to 5,500 people per square kilometre, which compared to, say, the population density of a city like Barcelona, just 16,500 people per square kilometre, is more comparable than you might think. That said, Greater London, if you take the entirety of Greater London, has a much greater population density than the population density of Greater Dublin. And i make my apologies to the people of Meath and Kildare and Wicklow right now, but for the purposes of urban analysis, it'd be useful to think of the broader Dublin area. Um, Well, in no way, blending those identities together. Um, On the other hand, though you do have a lower population density in Ireland, I think if you take the broader Dublin versus London area, a lower population density in the broader Dublin versus broader London area. That said, if you look at the percentage of the population in Ireland that lives in the broader Dublin area, it's 39%. That's really high. A lot of Ireland lives on the East Coast or commutes in and out to Dublin for work. I thought there were 44% of the workforce either lives in Dublin or works in Dublin, which means that a lot of the country comes in contact with Dublin on a daily basis, and some people would say to their, to their detriment, depending on their allegiances for GAA and yeah. football and all the rest. <laughs> we are a highly networked country. We, we see each other a lot and see each other quite often in a given week. Um, by comparison, if you look at the population of England, in, uh, you know, the portion of, of, the, of the population of England who lives in London, 16% live in London, 16% versus 39%. There's another population density statistic that I think is worth pulling out as well, which is the population density in your home. In other words, how many people are in your house? And that becomes relevant because household transmission has been really important in this pandemic. If you have somebody in your house that's sick and you're tending to them, even with the best people in the world, you are more likely to be exposed to the virus and get infected yourself because you're in an indoor space. And this virus transmits most easily, really, in in, the indoor spaces. The average size of a family, of of a household, rather, in the UK is 2.4. The average size of a family in Ireland is 2.75. That doesn't seem like a large difference in numbers, but if you were to multiply it all the way through, after 10 cycles, 2.4 means that you've been impacted 6,340 people 2.75 3.75 means it's twenty-four thousand maybe twenty five thousand people. So those kinds of differences really make a difference when we're talking about domestic transmission. And but we could go back and forth on this forever but it's a smooth and roundabouts really, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I suppose the the bottom line is that Ireland wasn't well set up or we had a certain demographic structures in our society and in our in our country. But I think that that is actually quite exposed to the pandemic. And at the same time, I think it's only fair to say that London, which is a massive transport hub, which is, who has a huge number of flights coming in and out of it every day, was particularly exposed. Yeah. And there is a reasonable argument to be made that no matter what choices either government made, that the UK or specifically England and the London area would have had a rougher ride than Ireland anyway. Yeah. And to that, I would say, well, that to me makes it all the more tragic that they delayed, that they shut down after us rather than before us.
1: Yeah.
2: If the UK is more exposed than we are, then surely they should have been introducing social distancing measures before us, not after. And that makes those two weeks all the more important in the terms of intervening.
0: One of the more jarring parts of your research and what I've read from your writing is that the UK's death toll only includes patients who passed away in a hospital setting after a coronavirus diagnosis. So that would leave out deaths in the community and nursing homes as well why have they taken this approach is it to try and minimize the social and maybe political impact of the number increasing or what's your findings been on it
2: good question um i i couldn't speak to that to be honest um i know that other people have uh i know that there have been quite a a chorus of voices especially in the scientific community in the uk who have been very uh taken aback to put it mildly or horrified frankly that the daily figures don't include the deaths in the nursing homes and the care homes, especially because, as, as you know, the research that's coming out of Europe is showing a really horrific thing that half, half of all deaths seem to be coming out of care homes and nursing homes. And again, when you think about it, it makes a horrifying kind of sense that the most vulnerable among us are being kept in indoor circumstances, which again is where the fire, seems to transmit most easily. We're um, being kept together in nursing homes and care homes and it's just ripping through those those uh, those places. So if you leave out those deaths, it's really skewing the figures quite badly. Um, the thing that I was pointing out on, on Twitter was my original calculations, I said that the death toll in the UK was double that of Ireland. But uh, if you take out... if you, if you Because Irish data figures include nursing home and care home deaths, if you take that out, it actually changes the differential quite a lot. And at that point, it's three and a half times as many deaths yeah. in the UK as there are in Ireland.
0: I think a lot of people in general over the last couple of weeks have said that the coronavirus in this pandemic shouldn't be used as a political issue. But I think when initial policies put in place by the UK government might have been one of the biggest impacts in not delaying the spread, Mm -hmm. I feel it's impossible to not politicise it. Would you agree with that, especially as someone who's come under quite a bit of backlash in the last maybe six or seven days over what they've written about it?
2: Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I would agree with you. In the sense that I think that all pandemics are political. Um, all epidemics are political. The decisions that our governments make to protect us fundamentally decide how many of us will die and how many of us will live. It also determines who among us will die. Are we going to protect the most vulnerable? Are we going to protect the people in the nursing homes and the care homes? Are we going to explicitly and and proactively get ahead of the curve and make sure that these, these places don't get infected? What choices are we going to make to protect the most vulnerable among us? These are all political questions. Um, these are also personal questions. When I say that they're political, it's not to, to distance ourselves from our moral responsibility and our ethical responsibility. It's not to say, well, this is for the politicians to decide. I mean, it's like, for me and you to have these conversations and say, how are we going to take care of each other as we, as we move through the next several months? Uh, because we're going to need to ask that question in a really uh, persistent way of ourselves and other politicians to hold them to account. Um, I think the reason why I brought this up rather to play the game game. Like, I, I really appreciate that we aren't going to have full information for such a long time. We, we still don't have full information about how the virus works. But we can't wait three or four years until we have a full data analysis to start asking these questions, because these questions matter going forward over the next several months in terms of, you know, do we start opening up our societies? And if so, how? And who is going to start moving around and, and going back to work and who isn't? If we don't understand what's happened over the past month, if that's somehow out of bounds to talk about, then how are we going to use that information to inform our next decisions as we go forward? I think that we need to understand what decisions we're making, how that is informed by the science, how the science is changing, um, how other countries have made their decisions and how they're faring as as we go forward, not just Ireland-UK comparison, but Germany, South Korea, Singapore, New Zealand, like all of these countries, all of which will have different demographics. You're never going to have an exact one-on-one comparison. But we do need to be looking up and looking around each other and 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 trying to grow our information so that we can we can get through this together.
0: That was episode 18 of Viral COVID-19. I would like to thank Elaine Doyle for joining me on the podcast today. You can check out more of her analysis on her Twitter, which is at doyle or in her article "Why is Coronavirus Killing So Many More People in the UK Than Ireland," which was printed in Tuesday's edition of The Guardian. I will be back on Monday with more analysis of the COVID-19 outbreak. I'm Ian Doyle. I'll talk to you then.